Hi, I'm Randa Fatah. And I'm Ramtin Arablouei. We co-host NPR's history podcast, Throughline, to help give some historical context to the police killing of George Floyd and so many other Black people in this country. This week, we're bringing you the deep history of policing in America. We wanted to understand how the relationship between police and the Black community had evolved to one so bloody and tragic. So we reached out to this historian. My name's Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. In his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Khalil lays out a historical argument for how Black people have been criminalized over the past 400 years in the U.S. And he does that by telling parallel narratives about the history of policing in the North and the South. These stories share one key feature, the use of brutal force to control Black Americans. Policing in America started in the mid-1600s with the Boston Watch, essentially a neighborhood watch group. But some of the first police forces in the South were created to control enslaved Black people. They would come to be known as slave patrols. Almost all white men had to serve in these patrols. Their duties were written into law, like this slave patrol statute from Louisiana in 1835. Arrest any slave or slaves, whether with or without a permit who may be caught in the woods or forest with any fire or torch, which slave or slaves thus arrested shall be subjected to corporal punishment not exceeding 30 stripes. So the tying together early on, the surveillance, the deputization essentially of all white men to be police officers and then to dispense corporal punishment uh, on the scene are all baked in from the very beginning. The Civil War eventually brought an end to slavery in America. But for most Black people in the South, it didn't fundamentally change their lives. And by the early 20th century, the KKK would emerge to enforce control over Black citizens in the South. And this pushed millions of Black citizens to flee to northern, progressive cities as part of what would become known as the Great Migration. Police officers receive African-American migrants uh, in the same way that their white neighbors and community peers did, which is with contempt and hostility. When a white person throws a Molotov cocktail into a new black homeowner on a street that had previously been all Irish or all Polish or all German, the police come and they arrest the black family and defend the white mob. And this happens time and time over and over again. They are policing the racial norms of white supremacy from the very beginning in the North. Black skin becomes equated with criminality. And according to Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the system hasn't fundamentally changed since then. He says that pointing out the problem is clearly not sufficient to fix the system. Because the problem has been known for a century. The evidence has been presented for a century. The recommendations for change, for holding police officers accountable, for charging them with criminal offenses when they behave criminally. It's a century of the same story playing out over and over again. It seems to me that's what's possible is recognizing that police officers and police agencies are incapable of fixing themselves. And so the question that has to be asked in the wake of George Floyd 
And I think this question is being asked and answered by more white people than I've seen in my lifetime is, do white people in America still want the police to protect their interests over the rights and dignity and lives of black and in too many cases, brown, indigenous, and Asian populations in this country. Our whole country is waiting to hear the answer to that question. That was historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. You can listen to this full episode of NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts and at npr.org slash throughline. Profane Faith fam, how y'all doing out there this week? Well, as promised, I wanted to have a special episode of the podcast that dealt specifically uh, with the um, George Floyd case and the uh, verdicts of that. But more importantly, what does policing look like um, in this country? Uh, How have different people responded to uh, that verdict? Uh, What does it mean now? Uh, almost 30 years, uh, almost to the date um, of the Rodney King verdict, uh, April 29th, 1992. Um, so what does that mean? Um, and more importantly, even with the meaning is 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 what is the action moving forward? Um, you know, first things first, if you're just joining us and this is your first time listening to Profane Faith, thank you for joining Um, I know each week there are different listeners, uh, folks chiming in from Ireland. I've seen some feeds or some connections from Italy as well. Uh, Welcome, my international listeners. Um, Yeah, uh, this is a podcast engaging with a lot of different areas of religion, faith, uh, race, and gender. So uh, I highly recommend going and checking out the archives. You can always go to whitehodgepodcast.com, click on Profane Faith. Or wherever you find your podcasts, you can look it up. Um, but I think it's important uh, for us to have this conversation. So this week, uh, I invited some friends around, uh, just around the country, really. Um, a lot of people just from the Twin Cities in general. I wanted to get their perspective and their thoughts on what that verdict meant in light of what happened last summer. In light of being in that city where... It's been the kind of ground zero. There's a lot of ground zeros, don't get me wrong, but that it's been, at least in recent times, in the last year and a half, two, three years, um, it's been the ground zero for a lot of really police terrorism that's been happening. And I'm of the mind and notion, and I'm sure this might get under some folks' skin, that the narrative and the mythology around uh, officers, police officers being heroes and being people of valor and honor, um, I don't believe that. And I, I think it's a false narrative. More importantly, it's used uh, as a form of really washing over uh, police activity um, as all being good, right? And we see this play out, right? It's very difficult to get a an officer convicted of anything. Uh, even the narrative from liberal, liberal uh, um, 
uh, news stations and media, you know, CNN, right? Uh, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult for folks to really look at this thing um, broadly. Uh, so I don't think that all officers, just because they sign up and they make a decision to go into law enforcement, uh, are heroes. Uh, maybe that may be the court, maybe me, maybe the, the result of some action. Um, but by and large, we're finding more and more groups of white supremacists, white nationalists, uh, people who have a disdain, anger, and hate for black and brown, Asian Pacific Islander folks, LGBTQ, uh, fam. We're seeing these things come out. Now, we who have borne the brunt of, of these uh, these terrorists that have been really patrolling our communities uh, have known this for a long time. I didn't need a report. I didn't need a book. I didn't need a history lesson on the police. We've known this. Uh, but now more and more information is coming out about the history of policing in this country. Um, and I highly recommend that you educate yourself on this matter. Uh, you know, policing is not just an open and shut case. It isn't just about dare, right? You know, dare to keep kids off drugs, uh, calling 911 if you have a problem. This is, goes much deeper and it's much more problematic than that. So, no, I won't call any police officer, um, you know, or law enforcement officer a hero. If they end up proving it to be that way, then great. If they do some heroic action. But more often than not, uh, there are some very vile and sick people who are filled with hatred, um, who are roaming around these communities uh, armed to the T and have the backing of the U.S. Constitution behind them. Uh, so we have some problems right now uh, that, uh, that, you know, obviously aren't going to get solved in one podcast. Um, but I'm hopeful in the sense that, you know, more people are talking about it, but I'm also very pessimistic, um, extremely pessimistic to see what is actually going to get done. Can we actually have conversations around defunding the police? And there's so much jargon that goes with that, uh, that people try to fool other folks into um, thinking that if we defund a police department, it means that criminals are just going to run rampant. Um, and that has been the political narrative and discourse uh, for many decades now uh, in regards to police reform uh, and beyond police reform, actually beginning to weed out some of these nationalists and some of these really terrorists who have embedded themselves uh, within these organizations um, and have been there for quite a long time. And I'm always amazed that people are still surprised of uh, some of these races caught on film talking about these things. So let's dive in, folks, um, and let's check out some of these narratives and some of these thoughts in and around in regards to uh, the George Floyd verdict. Let's check it out. Cannot say that 
I haven't read many other perspectives and opinions. So on one hand, I might not be able to say something you haven't heard of or you um you haven't thought of, but I guess I can say it from a different perspective that I haven't really seen as popular. So let me give you the perspective where I'm coming from on this. So first, I've actually been in the streets. And not only have I been in the streets, I was in Minneapolis uh, protesting, right, uprising, right? It wasn't just a, a, a riot. It was a clearly defined purpose, plan, organized. And even before I went out there, I went out there very early, maybe just like the second or third day after the killing. And before I was out there, Minneapolis got their stuff together, yo. Like the organizers there were on point. And they were already organized pretty much the day it happened, right? Like the very next day, they were out in the streets and they had a very, a very clearly identifiable and organized plan. So the the verdict, the George Floyd, the George Floyd verdict is a testament to them. Right? It's a testament to them. It's a testament to the video recording. Right? So it's a testament to those um who were in the streets, those who was in the street and it's a testament to Dar Darnella Frazier, right? Because she had the recording. And so from that perspective, it's like what the sacrifices that they made was worth it. And big picture, shortly after we got the ver verdict, we had this police shooting and killing of Makaya. And so it's like, for me, that sequence of events really points to, like, it really paints the, the bigger picture, right? So we have the, the George Floyd verdict. Um, Derek Chauvin pronounced guilty of everything, and he goes do his time. And then later, Micaiah Bryant is a 16-year-old black girl, right? She's not a grown woman, a black girl is killed. So for me, right, and let me let me clearly articulate this. When I was there, the, the rallying crowd was this is bigger than George Floyd. That's what we that's what they were saying. That's what we were saying on the ground. This is bigger than George Floyd. So on one hand, right, yes, this is like Yo, turn up. He guilty, right? And and I'm gonna tell you the reason. This is the point that just just that just knocks out the park. If he was found not guilty, imagine what would have happened. That right there shows the weightiness of this guilty verdict, right? And I and I feel like in a lot of things that I've seen that it kind of downplayed the guilty verdict. 
Now, so I want to say instead of an either or, as in that's not as important and other people and the racism and white supremacy still driving being most important, I don't want to go with that perspective. I want to say, I want to do a both and saying, look, yes, it's huge. This is big. We got that. And it's bigger than George Floyd. And in the grand scheme, it's not changing things, right? It's not changing is not stopping the murderous, the the state-sanctioned murder by police officers, by these, you can even call them race soldiers, who are upholding white supremacy, who are protecting property, who are fulfilling their very first mission as on slave patrols, right? So it doesn't change that, but it is, it is, it's, it's both things. Is it doesn't change the system, but hey, turn up. He is found guilty. And let me give you the other perspective. In my hometown, uh, I'm, I grew up in Richmond. I now live in Williamsburg, which is right outside of Newport News, Virginia. RIP to Kwanzaa KJ Beatty, who on January 4th, 2015, was killed by Newport News Police Department. I say his name. But he's another um, black man who many have never even heard of. And some of y'all, this is probably your first time hearing about him. We didn't have the same level of organization, the same media, everything that George Floyd got. So I want to speak on the perspective of the family members. Now, for the family members, right, this means a lot to George Floyd family members. Um, and that the 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 mom and the stepdad of the of KJ um, actually rest in peace to the stepfather. He actually died, right? He got so sick from. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say it. So this is what happened. The the we actually got a so KJ was shot according to the autopsy he was shot in the back of the neck so listen to this he shot in the based on the medical examiner's report he shot in the back of the neck yet and still his police killing was ruled justified so the family didn't get hardly any coverage hardly, no media coverage um I'm organizing, I live in Williamsburg, probably like 15 minutes away, 15, 20 minutes away, um, where traffic is like a 20 to 30 minute drive. I'm trying to organize between Williamsburg and Newport News for them. Um, and I'm just one person and this was, and yeah, I was a part of BLM, but I wasn't getting the organizational support from BLM at the time, right? Which is a whole nother story. So. I, I wasn't, I didn't have the level of organization that they had in Minneapolis. So this is why this is so huge that we got the guilty verdict, verdict for um, George Floyd. The mother is still struggling. So after the not guilty of her son's killing, she's still struggling to this day. And what is it, six years later, she's still struggling. Her former husband, um, her her husband is now deceased, so she's widowed, and like the and he had brothers and sisters. The family is struggling, 
So the family is struggling and they haven't and they haven't received justice um in a way that can address the struggles. Because what's what 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 the Newport News and the United States communicated to them was that they were justified in shooting KJ in the back of the neck. The bullet, the bullet went through on uh, the back of the neck and, and out. So it's both and. It's this is huge for us to get a guilty verdict, and it doesn't change. We still in a broken and fallen system that was never made for black people. It was never made. The Constitution was was not written for black people, or even though it. It says that all men were created equal. We know that black people are not created equal. And that's what it is. So yes, turn up is good. We did get a guilty verdict, but at the same time, this joint is still hard because we still dying every day. change uh, in my basic idea that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for freedom and justice. I think for the Negro to turn to violence would be both impractical and immoral. There is an increasingly vocal minority who disagreed totally with your tactics, Dr. King. There's no doubt about that. I will agree that uh, there is a, a group in the Negro community advocating violence now. I happen to feel that this group represents a numerical minority. Surveys have revealed this. But the vast majority of Negroes still feel that the best way to deal with the dilemma that we face in this country is uh, through nonviolent resistance. And uh, I don't think this vocal group will be able uh, to make a real dent in the Negro community in terms of swaying 22 million Negroes to this particular point of view. And I contend that the cry of black power is at bottom a reaction to the reluctance of white power to make the kind of changes necessary to make justice a reality for the Negro. 
I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. And I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America to a large extent. This is where we are at this point, and I think quite America will determine how long it will be and which way we go in the future. Even Senator Jacob Javits asked the question recently. He said that he was a slum resident, but he and some of his fellow Jews were able to make it out of the ghetto on the Lower East Side. The same thing is true with lots of Irish, Italians. And he asked the question why the Negro finds it so difficult to make his way up out of the ghetto. Well, number one, no other racial group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, it's nice to say other people were down and they got up. They were not slaves on American soil. The other thing is that the Negro has had high visibility. And because of the prejudices existing in this country, his color has been against him. It's been against him. Uh, and they've used this to keep him from moving up. In the final analysis, when you say to a man that you are in this position because of your race or because of your color, you say to that man that he can never get out of it. Other racial groups have been able maybe to change the accent or change the names, but the Negro can't. I'm Rochelle Ankeny, a professor of math at North Park University. So one thing that really struck me when the three convictions came down for Derek Chauvin, guilty on all counts, was that Keith Ellison, the Minnesota AG, said, this is not justice, but accountability. And I agree that justice would um, have a very different flavor, that George Floyd would be brought back, which is impossible if we had true justice. And someone like Derek Chauvin um, would never have been able to be a policeman if we had true justice. I think accountability is a step, but I'm also really struck. Um, I heard a response on the news from a, a woman in Minnesota 
who is a mother of four children, who's scared for her children, but is breathing just a tiny bit easier with this ruling. And I'm not a mom. Um, I like kids, and maybe because I like kids, but don't have children of my own, um, I have a little trouble when I see that um, not everyone treats all children as special. And I was so struck when George Floyd called out to his mom as he was dying, as he was being killed. And speaking as a white woman myself, I wonder when white women will rise up and use our power to change the way that all people's kids get treated. Whether those people's kids get treated well and respected and given the benefit of the doubt, or whether they're killed with their just body pressed into the asphalt and a knee on their neck, as if they're not even truly human. I wonder when white women will follow black women's example and protect all of God's children. And so I say, yes, of course we need accountability for Derek Chauvin. But I think that we need, as a society, to have true love for all God's children. All God's children. Not just white children, but black children and brown children. Asian, Pacific Islander children, Hawaiian children. Like I remember Psycap who was killed this month. Dante Wright, who was killed this month. Adam Toledo, who was killed this month. Michael Hughes, who was killed this month. Anthony Thompson Jr., who was killed this month. Makia Bryant, who was killed this month. All by police. When are those children going to matter to all of us? And I just think that if we could see um, all children as our children, and when those children grow up and get big, that we see that they were someone's children when they were little and that they're still someone's child, and that they're God's children too, and that God cares and God sees God sees every hair on their head, right? God sees the sparrow in the nest or out of it. Um, the world could be just a completely different place, a one where we all breathed freer if we really uh, worked to change um, the mindset of white women and white men everywhere um, to just see everyone as their responsibility, our responsibility, my responsibility. And those are my thoughts. Thanks, Dan.
guilty on all charges verdict uh, just because in the past other trials against white male police officers have always gone um, in favor of them so they've never really been held accountable Um, and it seemed like from like maybe the week like upcoming to the verdict it seemed like Minneapolis was preparing for a not guilty verdict, uh, boarding up uh, storefronts, um, canceling schools, etc. It really seemed like they did not have faith in the legal justice system, um, or rather they had faith that Derek Chauvin would not be found guilty. Um, but I have a lot of thoughts on this. Like, so Minneapolis or the state of Minnesota in general, um, no white male cop has ever been held accountable um, for a shooting prior to this, um, from what I understand. Um, and we spoke about this in our class where um, outsider white female cops who have shot or black male cops who have shot have been held accountable. And so it's always shocking um, Well, it is now shocking to see that Derek Chauvin was held accountable. Um, And then I also think that the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, her little uh, speech that, you know, basically George Floyd was a martyr was in poor taste. Um, And I don't think that what she said was acceptable as of right now. I don't know that she's rescinded that or apologized for phrasing her thoughts that way, but it was disappointing to hear her speak like that. Uh, But overall, I think that justice was not served um, in that justice would be abolition, right? Because what was it? Within a few hours, a black young female, I think she was a little girl, she was 15, was shot by a police officer this is not justice um in my opinion so overall like it was disappointing to like it's exciting that um we are seeing minimal movements of change right uh because it's taking so long for these uh cops white male cops to be held accountable so it's like it gives me hope rather that, you know, things are moving in the right direction, but reformation is not the answer in my opinion because of the the little girl getting shot, for instance, within hours of this, um, tr- this verdict coming in. So I just think that uh, abolition would all altogether be, uh, is it, I don't English know very good, Dr. Hodge, abolishment, is that the right word? Um, would be the best way to, 
you know, handle this going forward because community members, as we've spoken in class, like community members, church leaders, they're better equipped to deal with situations, in my opinion, than police officers who are trigger happy because, you know, at the end of the day, cops show up after a crime. They don't usually show up during a crime. Uh, they have low, um, like, I guess, closing rates. So, I don't know. I just, I'm disappointed that in Speaker Pelosi, I'm disappointed that within hours of the verdict, another trigger-happy cop uh, killed a black child. who are trying to solve the problem, but you never see them going under the label of liberals. That, that white person that you see calling himself a liberal is the most dangerous thing in the entire Western Hemisphere. He's the most deceitful. He's like a fox, and a fox is, almost, is always more dangerous in the forest than the wolf. You can see the wolf coming. You know what he's up to, but the fox will fool you. He comes at you with his mouth shaped in such a way that even though you see his teeth, you think he's smiling. guilty on all counts for the murder of George Floyd. During the trial, I thought about and prayed for Floyd's friends and family, especially the day that a verdict was read. With those three words, guilty, 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 came a semblance of accountability, especially for Floyd's family and for black and brown communities that are disproportionately targeted by police. What I kept thinking about was the defensive-like behavior, primarily by white folks, Chauvin was just a bad apple. He was wrong and rightfully punished for his actions. Now don't get me wrong, he was rightfully punished, but George Floyd should be alive today. So should Breonna Taylor. So should Philandra Castile. So should Makia Bryant. The current system is systemically harming and killing BIPOC and reforming it hasn't proved to make it any more effective. And by that, I mean less deadly for black and brown folks. And if you want to come at me with, where's the data? Well, a report by Yale and UPenn from 2020 found no reduction in racial disparity in fatal police shootings despite increases in use of body cameras and media attention. The current police system needs to be defunded. For black and brown people to be safe and for communities to thrive, money should not go to public safety, air quotes, in its current forms. Invest in school invest in after-school programs and counselors and neighbors and healthcare and jobs and community centers. Reform is not the answer. Divesting from our police and reimagining public safety is. I cannot take credit for this idea. It's what I hear from my black brothers and sisters. As a white lady, I amplify support and when needed, roll up my sleeves. I really want to speak loud and clear for those folks who want reform and shy away from defunding the police. For those who still believe in reform 
I leave you with a thought. If a company produces a cake with spoiled ingredients, bad apples if you will, and we learn the cake harms and kills consumers, should we take existing cakes and try to pull out the bad ingredients? How do you do that? You can't extract the tainted flour or eggs. It's part of the cake. It's baked in. I guess you could cover it up with some fancy schmancy frosting, but the cake is still harmful. It's still killing many of its consumers. Would you really have the audacity to say, oh, it's not poisoning me or my family. We buy the cake for all our celebrations. I guess some people don't know how to eat it correctly. I mean, how ridiculous does that sound? So you scrap the cake, pull them from the shelves, and the company that knowingly made this cake year after year goes under. During this time, consumers band together. And ultimately, cake isn't what people wanted all along. I wonder why, perhaps their only experience with the dessert item is that it was poisonous. Collectively, a new project product is reimagined. One that safely and appropriately meets the needs of the community it serves. Cop is a cop. Well, cops you know? are white. And you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he may be, he may be a very nice man. But I haven't got the time to figure that out. You know, all I know is he's got a uniform and a gun. You know, and I had to relate to him that way. You know, <laughs> that's the only way to relate to him mm -hmm. at all. Because one of us is, you know, one of us may have to die. One of us, you know, in New York, there's a, a big campaign going on to humanize the uh, policemen, and they have post uh, billboards upstate, and they have a picture of a big cop bending over this little blonde girl mm -hmm. and, and the sign say and some people call him pig mm -hmm. and I wanted to buy a billboard I told a friend of mine I want to buy a billboard and show this big cop and this 14 year old kid with 30 bullets in him and saying some people call him peacemaker Joanna, thanks for your invitation to, I guess, give a response for your podcast about the trial. Um, I guess for your listeners, my name is Joanna Hallstrom. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota with my family, um, uh, two kids, and uh, my partner, Pete. And uh, we live, for context, we live um, geographically between um, Cup Foods, where George Floyd was murdered and the third precinct, which is the um, site of the most intense protesting last summer. Um, the night that George Floyd was killed, our family was out getting ice cream at the Dairy Queen, which is not too far from Cup Foods, a couple blocks, um, and walked to see a friend and we heard the sirens and but didn't know what, what, what happened until the next morning. And then found ourselves intentionally, of course, back on the street. Um, the next night, um, gathered with a sea of people marching from Cup Foods to the 3rd Precinct in protest. Um, 
Monday before the trial started, my sister and I walked over to um, Friendship Missionary Baptist Church where there was a prayer vigil with the Floyd family um, the night on the eve of the trial. And that to me, um, it was like Easter service uh, to gather. Again, I hadn't been in a church for, well, for a year. Um, and wasn't intending to go in because of COVID, but my sister and I just felt compelled to go in and um, sit in the back pew and be witness and um, par participant in the prayer. And uh, it was a really, um, for me, a really moving time um, to begin um, this trial. Uh, I've been able to listen to most of the trial and the jury selection um, because I'm an artist and I have a big project so I was drawing in my studio most of the time and be, was able to li uh, listen and follow and um, which those that did it was reliving a very traumatic event and um, difficult but it was for me uh, really important to be present during that time and to to see the trial unfold um, and as most people was hoping but hard to hope for a um, result uh, in favor of the Floyd family. Um, when the verdict was about to be read, Pete actually texted me. Um, I was in my studio and said that it was coming between 3.30 and 4 and so literally our whole, everybody's scrambling to either, you know, the schools were closing, um, practices, sports practices were closed, you know, stopping, everybody's trying to get home and be um, in a space where they could hear uh, the verdict and um, I was in my studio alone <laughs> uh, downtown and um, he was just going to pick me up afterwards so that we could all, um, he wouldn't get caught in traffic and we could all listen. Um, uh, my personal experience, I, I could hardly hold my pencil because I was my hands are sweating so bad when the verdict was read, and was couldn't believe it, um, but was so excited when um, I heard guilty, guilty, guilty three times. Um, we were pretty confident we'd get a few of the convictions, but not all of them, and. Um, I could hear someone in the shop below me holler, and I hollered. Um, and the city just felt, you could feel this physical release of energy, and we were so tense and so, um, uh, the energy was just so wrapped up, and instead of it, well, it felt like a champagne bottle exploding <laughs> versus a bomb in our city. Um, it was one moment where we could express joy and um, in the form of tears and and a release of pain and grief, but it was um, a joyous occasion um, that finally, finally, in a case like this, that justice accountability um, was received um, and a collective um, celebration for the Floyd family. Um, and yet on top of that was, uh, it is and ongoing the Dante Wright um, uh, case and um, killing. And that is um, 
So yeah, just it's layers that never stop. But in this one instance right now, um, there's celebration, and I, um, with no illusion that that this is a, vic a victory and a bigger battle that's been going on for a long time. So, and we'll continue as we know to to um, to go on. So uh, that's my reflection. Um, I couldn't uh, give you it earlier. I just didn't have any words, and I still don't have many words. But um, love you, Dan and Emily, and um, and Mahalia. When I heard the guilty verdict, I exhaled with a sigh of relief that jurors did the right thing, that George Floyd's family might get some comfort, that Americans would not need to riot tonight. And then I immediately thought, I can exhale, but George Floyd cannot, because he was robbed of his breath, had his life stolen. Another girl lost her father, another parent lost their precious child. No court can bring them back or fully right that wrong. And that's why so many are sick and tired of being sick and tired. We might call the decision just, but that doesn't set everything right. There's so many other steps, additional protections, changes to our legal processes and police procedures that are necessary for us to even approach a system we might consider equitable or just. Thank God for citizen journalists like Darnella Frazier, who recorded the full nine minutes and 29 seconds of cold-blooded terror. May she be healed from the trauma she experienced and relived over and over. Video images may not be a lifesaver, but they can still bear witness and reveal crucial details often whitewashed in the official story. And we're all called to share the collective burden by adding our voices to the chorus that says, enough. We've now seen what a difference an attorney general can make. The election of Keith, Keith Ellison in Minnesota impacted the outcome because of how he positioned and prosecuted the case. I'm also encouraged by how the Department of Justice, led by Merrick Garland, opened an investigation into systematic problems in the Minneapolis Police Department that allowed Derek Chauvin to continue on the force after he'd already done the same thing to a 14-year-old boy for 17 minutes back in 2017. May the Department of Justice renew their commitment to living up to their name. Elections matter, votes count, our small decisions to get involved in our government can make a big difference. Our police forces kill over 1,000 of our fellow citizens every year, and we know which neighborhoods and people are the primary targets. That kind of body count is off the charts compared to Canada, Australia, Germany, Japan. Only seven or eight officers will be tried and convicted of taking justice into their own hands, shooting first and falsifying their reports later. We've got quite a soul sickness when it comes to condoning violence enacted by the police state against those they've pledged to serve and protect. And before we even 
had fully exhaled. Another police shooting occurred in Columbus, Ohio, taking down Makia Bryant, the 15-year-old girl in foster care who'd called 911 in search of protection. The officer was on the scene for 10 seconds before he shot her down. No attempt to break up the fight, to disarm the situation, to even understand who was who and what was what. Shoot first, grieve for a lifetime. We can appreciate the complexity of police work and how officers put themselves in harm's way while still questioning and critiquing such violent snap judgments. I don't want to play God with people's lives, and yet when we arm people with badges and bullets, these kinds of mistakes and misfires are bound to blow up and end up taking out kids with their hands up, like 13-year-old Adam Toledo, shot dead in Chicago. May Adam rest in peace, and may his family find solace and justice. We're in a time of national reckoning, and a reckoning is a form of accounting, looking at the numbers, adding up the cost to families, to communities, to our nation, to our collective soul. We can allow the sight of Derek Chauvin in handcuffs to salve our conscience and offer reassurance for a day maybe even a season, but we also must hear and respond to the ongoing calls for redress and reform. May the cruel and twisted murder of George Floyd, the shooting of Adam Toledo, the killing of Makia Bryant, break our hearts, quicken our spirits, and propel us towards more justice, more peace. Amen. thoughts on the conviction of Derek Chauvin. I sat in my living room awaiting the verdict. And as it came, it was sad that the outcome was still undetermined in my mind. Uh, When it was announced guilty on all charges, I felt a sense of relief, but definitely not a sense of uh, celebration. There's no bringing George Floyd back to be restored to his life and his loved ones. There's no removing the trauma that the bystanders who witnessed his killing had to experience. And there's no removing the trauma from our city and our neighborhood. And all those who had to witness his brutal killing. It was painful to watch the trial, which I tried to make myself do, uh, just to try to understand. Uh, But painful to watch an attempt at defense of Chauvin's indefensible actions. Painful to watch as they tried to demonize George Floyd and justify the action, or better yet, the non-action of uh, providing aid that he so desperately needed. It was painful to watch them demonize the crowd of bystanders 
will only raise their voices in defense of George Floyd's life. To watch them demonize a man trying to defend another man and paint him as angry. To listen to them demonize children who could see the despicable nature of the act taking place. To demonize my coworker who spoke out and tried to render aid but was not allowed. So all this led to, again, that feeling of relief, but definitely not celebration. In searching for hope, I hope that uh, the Floyd family can find some healing in the this verdict. I hope that the bystanders can find some healing in the outcome and know that they did what they could both that day, but also in having the courage to share their story and raise their voices during the trial. I also hope that our city can somehow find healing. We still have the scars, the physical scars of the aftermath of George Floyd's killing killing that will be with us for a long time. And again, I hope that we can find healing from those and especially the livelihoods of the local community that were so affected can find a way to come back. I hope that those scars that are visible to us can be our reminder to take this tragedy and somehow build a better community to make the real and difficult changes that need to be made to rebuild a better community. And I pray that Minneapolis can be an example of making real changes and real reform that lead to a better community. I'm walking down the street and police got the nerve to ask me, where you going? Where you coming? Ain't none of your damn business where I'm going. And ain't none of your damn business where I came from. Fuck you talking about where are you going? He gonna ask me, what are you doing here? You go anywhere and ask anybody else what they doing there? You stop and ask anybody else in this society, man, why do you exist? You understand what I'm saying? But you got to know to ask me that all day, every day. Now, what do you think that does to me psychologically? What does that tell me? What message am I being fed every day? See, you don't understand that every day he's feeding me a spoonful of hatred. Every day, that's my diet, spoonful of hatred. You see? And it's just a question of when is this going to erupt? And upon whom is it going to erupt? Am I going to attack myself? Am I going to attack my brother? You understand? Am I going to attack my own image in the mirror? Or am I going to eventually attack the cause of my anger and my frustration? But the point is, I'm a walking time bomb. I'm going to go off someday, somewhere, on somebody. The question is, upon whom?
So uh, as I saw this trial and as I saw the whole case with uh, Brother George, um, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was stirring. I mean, to say the least, I've tried to get to a point now where I don't watch these killings um, anymore. I get their purpose. I get why they're released. I understand the purpose of that. I just, for me, uh, it brings up so much angst and uh, really trauma, relive trauma um, that I just don't necessarily want to engage. So I really never saw the tape uh, of George Floyd being murdered. I knew what happened. I knew exactly what was going on, um, but I didn't need to see it. Um, you know, with the uprisings that happened last summer, uh, if you're listening to this in real time, we're in 2021, last summer, 2020, um, you know, I knew that this was just the first layer that if this dude was arrested, um, and you know, that's kind of been standard protocol, like we'll arrest these cats, hopefully shut y'all up, but then never convict. I knew that was gonna be the second battlefield um, and really much bigger than the first. Like, yes, that was huge, that was horrible, but are we gonna actually hold anyone accountable? Because there were other cops there. Um, and, you know, I wanna know are those other cops gonna be held accountable as well? Um, you know, and we've seen time and time again, right? How how often, you know, there's video, uh, there's video evidence, it is there, it is present, and it's so easy uh, for officers just to get off. Uh, and, and which is one of the many reasons why uh, officers continue to just act, you know, their racist selves uh, when they get, in, you know, when black folks are in front of them or in anyone of that nature, right? Um, so, it's it's fascinating to me, um, you know, just the excuse. Somebody wrote uh, the other day, I don't know who said this, I can't give you full credit, but, you know, like there's two deaths that, you know, black folks experience when we get killed. There's the physical death, right, by the police, and then there's the character assassination that happens. You know, and all these things start coming out. Well, he was doing this. Well, she was doing that. Well, they shouldn't have mouthed off. Well, well, well all these things right and y'all are smart enough to know y'all are listeners of this show you smart enough to know that there is a difference uh when white folks there are countless videos on the internet right now of white folks who get pulled over and act a damn fool and never get killed i also think there's something that happens in our country in regards to guns and gun violence there is something about the training that we know police officers receive right we know that police officers receive the training that says you know any person can kill you at any time um you know and that compounded with racial biases racism white supremacy white supremacy groups right who want to eradicate people of color particularly black folks um is a bad combination and you know, I think policing in general um, is just an extension of the state, um, the strong arm of the state and having a constitution, having law, quote unquote, behind you uh, gives those in authority um, much more, uh, much more the, the, the will and the drive and the space to do what they're going to do, whatever they want to do. This notion that, you know, protect and serve doesn't fall for us, doesn't connect with us who are on the other side of that brute force. So, no, I don't believe that there is a protect and serve. Um, I do I do my best to avoid calling 911 um, when there is a situation. Um, we know 
right? We know this. And, you know, I saw, what was it? I think in New York or New Jersey, uh, they voted to, uh, I believe it's in that area, um, that they there was a vote to, you know, not have police respond uh, in a 911 emergency situation when there is somebody with a mental health condition, uh, you know, in that situation that, you know, social workers are going to be the ones responding. I mean, I think that's a great first step. I think as we consider right the levity well not even the levity of any of that um but we kind of the 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 gravity if you will excuse me better language the gravity of that situation um you know that those situations right again when involving a black person it's it's almost like there is a full right to shoot and what always gets me is people who still say um hey we should you know we should wait till all the evidence is here hey we should i don't need to hear for any more evidence i really don't um so for again going back to you know the trial of uh you know derek chauvin i'm like this dude he's been guilty um exactly what he did the fact his looks uh on his face the previous interactions he had with uh, Brother Floyd, the fact that he's had other interactions like this before, all these things lead up, right? And and we don't find out until these things, right? Until it makes a national case. There are other Derek Chauvins that are out there <laughs> right now on patrol right now, maybe in your neighborhood. Um, he's not the first. This notion of all oh, is lone wolf. That's not a lone wolf. The lone wolf is the is the person who is the cop who actually wants to do the job that a cop is retired to do. That's the lone wolf. Those are the minority. And this trial, again, just so much built up in it. Again, I said it, it you know, at the beginning, almost to the date um, of the Rodney King's uprising in uh, on April 29th, 1992. We're almost at 30 years from that. <laughs> like, wow, what has changed in 30 years? Three decades. We're flying damn helicopters on Mars, but we're still dealing with some of the same shit from the 18th century, right? These ideological constructs. So no, I wasn't, I was very nervous when, when I saw the headline come across my feed saying that, you know, the jury has reached a verdict and they're going to, you know, read it here within the next two hours. I think I, you know, I'm, I'm central time in Chicago and it was Eastern time that they said they were gonna read it. Um, and uh, I was just nervous. And for me, it's about self-care at this point in my life. I'm not 20-something anymore. I mean, yeah, I've got dry, but I was like, how, I need to protect my own self. I don't need my blood pressure to go up. I don't need my heart rate to get palpitations. So what? you know what I did? I did music. I was in my lab. I, I was doing music. I came down because it's such a therapeutic process for me. So for me, it was about engaging in something that I could still be connected, but also have my mind occupied doing something. I tried to listen to my body. I tried to uh, eat what I needed to, not eat what I, you know, keep, stay hydrated. All those things are important um, in these moments, especially the older you get. It's very easy, right, uh, to get caught up in, in, in the work of it and not understand what your body is actually trying to say um so that was that was the state i was in uh my partner emily and our daughter uh Mahaley, they were at, actually at our horse lesson if you know me you know her 
she's into horses. And so she was actually at her lesson. Uh, and this is one of the things I hate about <laughs> this sport that she uh, that she has uh, picked. I support her, but these horses aren't in the city, right? So we got to go all the way out in the boondocks. The place that she rides is an hour away. Hour one direction, hour back. And uh, so we're, I'm texting with Emily and just saying, hey, and she was like, no, we're good. We're good. You know, just make sure you're good. So I was like, I'm, I'm good. I'm in the basement. I'm in the lab. I'm good. Um, you know, I'm almost on pins and needles. I, I know for the um, Juan McDonald, uh, the, the McDonald um, trial here in Chicago, when they were reading the verdict, I remember I was trying to avoid that. My blood pressure went up. I just, I was just a sense of angst. I got, you know, indigestion. And I was just like, okay, I need to, Laquan McDonald, excuse me, uh, Laquan McDonald. I was, I was like, okay, let me breathe. Um, and that's what I was trying to do. And it, and it worked. It worked. Um, I was taken that all three counts were found guilty. Um, and uh, those of you who are legal scholars, you know, you can talk about the, you know, uh, you know, what are the what are the percentage rates and what is the stats around, you know, when a jury comes back early or if they deliberate a long time. I mean, so, you know, I think the final place will, on, on all this will be was specifically to Derek Chauvin and George Floyd will be how much time he receives. Um, and that'll be interesting to see how that's broken down. Um, you know, these, again, are traumatic times. These are traumatic events. And we're starting to see these things pop up every day. Um, and in places that we, you know, that, that most people are like, I can't believe that. Exactly. You can't believe it because again, a lot of folks who just haven't had to experience that. Um, so those are kind of my reflections on where I was at and what I was thinking. Um, you know, when this verdict came back, I was surprised. Uh, I was, I was, uh, in a sense relieved that there were three, uh, guilty convictions, I don't believe this is justice for George Floyd. I don't believe that this is, you know, white liberals want to hop on this and be like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is, the system has changed. No, <laughs> ain't shit changed. We got one, 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 one police officer got these guilty verdicts and they're fighting hard as hell against those as well. So no, this is a drop of dye in a, an Olympic sized pool. Okay. That's this. This is what this equivalence and you trying to turn the pool green and you just dropped one drop of green dye <laughs> in the pool. OK, that's the equivalent. So please don't start with the oh, man, you know, some of these other, you know, news outlets like CNN is already saying, you know, like, hey, we're we've made a milestone. Like, mm, mm, really, really? No, we have not because we still have black bodies being killed to this day even probably while y'all are listening. So we got work to do, fam. We got work. Well, Dan, thank you so much for asking me to, to share my thoughts on, on the verdict of this past week. Um, that day was actually a really beautiful day in New York City. Um, the sun was shining, the, the weather was, was great. So I was on the long walk with my dog um, and I get an alert on my phone that, that the jury had reached a, a verdict. And, um, and so I took my dog and, and I rushed home. But I was, I was so nervous that whole rest of the walk. 
um, I was nervous that that the verdict would would be not guilty for some reason um, and then I was just incredibly sad that um, that I was nervous at all um, that that I didn't that I don't have faith um, in the system currently um, so that was that was my thought process as, as I walked home um, to, to go hear the verdict um, and and then the verdict came out that that uh, Derek Chauvin was was guilty on on all three counts um, and I remember feeling um, feeling relief um, it, it wasn't excitement or joy uh, I, I had I remember having excitement and joy when Trump lost um, but this was not the same um, there wasn't there there wasn't excitement um, I, I felt like I was able to exhale for 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 just a moment um, and then I remember thinking that I hope the narrative going forward isn't that that the rogue cop got everything that was coming to him that this was an isolated rogue cop that um, that didn't do his job but that the the system is is fine um, so I and, and I'm still worried that that's gonna be the narrative that 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 the bad apple got uh, got taken away um, because a few hours later we we noticed that the things were still not fine um, with the shooting of, of, of Micaiah Bryant um, and it, it pains me that that people of color never get the benefit of the doubt um, and that it seems like the police shoot first before they think first we saw that with Adam Toledo as his hands were up um, with Micaiah Bryant the, the the first instinct was to shoot um, and I, I'm not a police officer, um, so I am speaking from, from some ignorance, but there's gotta be some, some better de-escalation techniques. Um, there, there has to be something better than the shooting first. And I know that there is something better because white people are taken away alive with machine guns in their hands with, with, so I, I know that, that, that is a possibility. But people of color never get that benefit of the doubt, and it's frustrating to no end. Um, I, 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 I've been telling the story recently. I've, I've been thinking about this recently. That um, when I worked in California as a youth pastor, um, one of the churches I worked for was a, a primarily uh, white youth group, and uh, a seventh-grade kid brought a pellet gun uh, to, to youth group. And, and I took it away from him because he was being annoying. Like he was shooting up everybody in the youth group and it was a pain in the butt. So I took the gun from him, the toy gun. And then a few years later, I, I worked in the primarily uh, black and Latinx youth group. Um, and again, a seventh grade kid brought a pellet gun and, and he wasn't being annoying like the other kid. Um, but I took the gun from him not because he was being annoying, but because I was scared for his life. I was scared that if he, once he left youth group, if a police officer saw him with a pellet gun, that they would shoot him on the spot and not give him, not give him the benefit of the doubt. And it breaks my heart that, that that's the reality. Um, it's, it's not fair. It's bullshit. <laughs> um, so I, I feel a sense of relief from the verdict 
and I have a little bit of hope that this opportunity, this has an opportunity to change some things around within the system. Um, but I know that it's gonna be a slow journey and it breaks my heart that in order to get there, it feels like more people will die. And that shouldn't happen. I hate that more people will die before things get to where they need to be. And I don't know how to stop that. And it's frustrating. It's sad. And I fear for kids of color every single day. I mean, I work with, with youth group kids and, and I don't know how to completely protect them. And I hate that. As I sat incessantly refreshing the news app on my phone earlier this week, I was more anxious than I can ever recall waiting to hear the verdict in a court case. Given the precedent of rarely convicting police officers for shooting or using excessive force against suspects, I seriously doubted that George Floyd's case would be any different. When the jury came back with convictions on all three counts against Derek Chauvin, I was shocked and immediately flooded with tears as I released a long sigh. My doubt that Derek Chauvin would be convicted of murder came from knowing that murder convictions for police officers are exceedingly rare. According to a New York Times article by David Leonard, there have only been seven murder convictions of police officers for fatal police shootings since 2005. While we are aware that this case did not involve a police shooting, people around the world were disgusted and disturbed watching Derek Chauvin kneel on the neck of a handcuffed George Floyd for over nine minutes as he pleaded that he could not breathe and called for his mother. In my elder millennial conscious memory, there have been so many acts of police using excessive force or being involved with fatal shootings of unarmed people of color, they started to blur together. For millions of people throughout the world, something snapped as we watched the video of George Floyd's murder recorded by the teenager Darnella Frazier, who had the courage to film the scene unfolding in front of her. I cannot exactly pinpoint why this particular case sparked so many people who had never considered themselves activists before to say enough is enough and take a stand against police brutality, as well as deep-seated issues of systemic and institutionalized racism in America. The manner in which George Floyd was killed while in police custody was nothing short of deplorable, and the moment it happened amidst a pandemic added to the stress, fear, anger, and anxiety felt by millions. The initial tears I shed upon hearing the verdict were quickly replaced by the weight of all the work that is still to come. The conviction of Derek Chauvin was not a referendum on policing in America. It was a jury recognizing that George Floyd's life mattered, which resulted in convicting Chauvin for Floyd's wrongful death. Justice was served in this individual case, but there are still three other officers to be tried in connection with the George Floyd case. Despite overwhelming numbers of people of all ages representing diverse racial and ethnic groups joining Black Lives Matter's protests throughout the nation in the weeks after George Floyd's death, police shootings of predominantly brown and black Americans persist. In the past three weeks alone, police have fatally shot 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago, 20-year-old Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 16-year-old Makia Bryant in Columbus, Ohio, and Adam Brown Jr. in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. As a nation, we do a poor job of remembering our history and understanding the cyclical nature and historical context for many contemporary issues. 
To illustrate this point, many participants in Black Lives Matter protests across the nation believed that these were the first protests against police brutality and underlying conditions of inequality due to systemic racism. Though the BLM protests were collectively some of the largest protests in U.S. history, how quickly we forget Los Angeles in 1992, or Chicago in 1968, or Detroit and Newark in 1967, all of which were protesting some of the exact same issues. The Civil Rights Acts of 1965 and 1968 served to reaffirm and bolster rights already guaranteed in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. These acts did not happen overnight and were resultant of years of grassroots organizing and building strategic alliances. As a biracial American woman, I have had more painful and humiliating encounters with racial prejudice than I care to recall. At the birth of each of my sons, when I saw that they had much lighter complexions than myself, I was overwhelmed with a sense of relief that they will be able to pass as white so they will not have to endure the same experiences I have. The sense of relief was quickly followed by shame and guilt that I felt the need to wish whiteness on my children at the expense of denying them a rich multicultural heritage. Despite the fact there is something inherently wrong with our society that these were my first thoughts after welcoming my beautiful sons into the world, I still believe in the potential of our United States to be the city upon a hill. Perhaps the legacy of George Floyd's murder will be the flashpoint for the civil rights movement of our era to demand a dramatic overhaul of our critical criminal justice system, as well as national, a national reckoning on the issue of race in America. There is not a possibility for racial reconciliation in our country until we are willing to acknowledge racism and all the inequ inequity it has created in our society, then put in the work to finally fix the shortcomings and failures of the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. As we know with any movement for civil rights, it is not a sprint, but a marathon. Simply hanging a Black Lives Matter flag, putting a homemade sign in your window, or chalking the sidewalk is not enough. In order to dismantle the pernicious, weedy roots of white supremacy in our nation, we must actually listen with empathy and humility to what people of color have been saying for hundreds of years. Learn to be an ally while still allowing oppressed people to have agency. Read what non-white authors have to say about critical race theory and how to be an anti-racist. Stand up to racial injustice and call it out when you see it. And finally, demand legislators at all levels of government to take action to create a nation that finally realizes its founding principles so we may permanently bend the arc of our moral universe towards justice. See, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, uh, because of the way this society is organized because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere. You have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life and walk out on the street every day seeing white policemen surrounding you, I 
When I was living in Los Angeles, for instance, long before the situation in L.A. ever occurred, uh, I was constantly stopped. No, the, the, the police didn't know who I, who I was, but I was a black woman. I had a, had a natural, and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, uh, uh, and, then, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember it for, from the time I was very small. I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like, uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just, uh, I just find it incredible, it, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. First, I'm incredibly grateful the jury did the right thing. It won't bring George Floyd back, but at least his family will know that his murder is behind bars and was held accountable. At the same time, like many have mentioned, it's still incredible that it took a long, drawn-out murder, done in broad daylight, captured on video, to hold a white police officer accountable, let alone the first in Minnesota history. And the fact that this was the first officer held accountable means that this was an anomaly, an outlier. And when we think about the fact that there were close to a thousand police-involved killings per year, it's painful to think about how many black and brown people have lost their lives at the hands of the police, and their family and loved ones will never see someone held accountable. And also, this doesn't take into account the over one million people who are incarcerated, many of whom who are black and brown, with a significant number of those who are there, not because they're guilty, but simply because they're racially profiled, they couldn't afford an attorney. And I mean, this is why we call it the criminal justice system. 
It's a system designed to protect white people from their adversaries and a system that reinforces white supremacy. But before I go further on that, um, as a Korean American, there really is another painful element in all of this. The Hmong American officer, Tao, he was watching the whole thing, saw what was happening and looked the other way. He heard George Floyd calling for help, gasping for air, and he just walked away or, or just stood there. And seeing that part of the narrative um, really brings me back to the fact that as an Asian American, Asian Americans have to come to grips with the fact that many of us have been in some ways doing the same thing. We stand to the side, we're not part of the central narrative, trying to subtly appease white supremacy, afraid to challenge it, we're afraid to challenge it and do the right thing. And in doing so, we perpetuate the racist systems that kill and oppress black and brown people in this country on repeat. I know a number of Korean Americans whose, whose parents own stores in black communities, and many of them likely call the cops if there was a confrontation. And the question is, whose side would the cops take? We all know how race and colorism works in this country. So as much as I'm thankful for the verdict that held Chauvin accountable, I still grieve that we have such a long way to go. Because the camera centered Chauvin, but at the same time, Chauvin wasn't the only one who was guilty. There were others who were guilty by association, by their unwillingness to have the courage to act. And whether I like it or not, I'm part of that picture too. Hey, Dr. Hodge, you asked me what my thoughts were on the Chauvin trial and the conviction yesterday. And dang, first, I would say that my first response was emotional. Uh, just weeping at the relief of what could have been. I was holding my breath. Literally noticed myself holding my breath. I had texted a lot of friends, <clears throat> primarily black friends that I knew were holding their breath and likely having trauma response to this whole situation, waiting what usually happens, waiting for what usually happens, which is uh, no conviction, right? Um, and then just a huge sense of relief. It f felt like every time he got convicted for each of the each of the parts I just felt a huge sense of relief that was it almost felt like I was coming from feeling a sense of drowning and finally gasping for breath and I'm not black right I am white presenting um, I don't have the same experience and it just all of it just one big cloud and, and, and ball or bag of emotions, relief, um, and then a sober realization. You know, we've only had seven murder convictions of officers for fatal police shootings since 2005. Seven. Only seven in 16 years, 15 and a half years. Um, 
And every time, it's not just about the direct facts on trial, right? It's racial minority, immigrant, women's truth and identity is on trial. The identity and reality is on trial, causing people to consistently ask themselves if they are crazy. Um, this was not anything other than, or this was primarily, I would say, an exception to the rule, right? This was an exception, exception to the rule, and it took protests, it took rallies, it took the emotional duress of family and friends and others around the country, around the world. And that's not new, but it took all of that to have basic, basic, basic accountability. All of that. It took a social cultural tidal wave to create basic racial accountability. And, you know, after I came off of a high of emotions and celebrating, just all those things start to sit in, right? The, the reality of it all. And, and the reality that most of these factors would not apply to future police killings, right? Those cases will instead look more like the deaths of Michael Brown, Philando Castillo, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, etc. Um, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, and, and hundreds of others that that we don't see or hear about <clears throat> because there's no social cultural tidal wave. Um, you know, and, and, and I think a lot about that dynamic of the tidal wave effect where for the most part, white people just are surprised when the tidal wave, like, like an ocean tidal wave, it, it hits the, the shore and everybody's, oh my gosh, what is happening? This is new. Uh, protest. I should protest. I should be an ally now that the tidal wave hit hit the shore. And uh, and racial minorities have been feeling the initial rumblings of miles out off of shore when the tidal wave starts to build, right? The emotional duress of trying to explain what's coming because racial minorities know what's coming. Another police killing is coming. And already we have another 16-year-old where police shot her. And I don't know all the details, so I don't want to speak into that. But a 16-year-old woman, young woman, can't be contained by police, so they have to end her life. I don't know the details, but I do know that they could have kept on walking away. Apparently she was holding a knife, was threatening others. That's some bullshit right there. So we already know what's happening, what will happen again, and that we will not have a tidal wave. So for me, we gotta get ahead of it, right? Because we just had accountability, basic, basic accountability from a tidal wave. I'd rather start working where the tidal wave begins, miles offshore, the rumblings are there and that's in these local communities where police accountability is nil because there's no policy there there's no policies in the police department there's no training I mean training in the military which I am more familiar with tra training for on-field uh, on-field training for military people is about 20% of the time, one day a week, two hours a day, whichever, right? 20% of the time, 
to create that muscle memory and reaction that counteracts fear and other factors that can derail a mission, a military mission. And yet police officers here, they get a few weeks of training in the police academy and just about no training, three times a year, a couple hours each time. You cannot create behavior change with that type of training. The only thing we do with that type of lack of training, lack of behavior change as a goal, the only thing we create is racial bias and we perpetuate the same dang cycle all over the all over and over again. So I think DEI training needs to be a huge part of what every police department has and plans for at every level, right? Entry needs to be different than managerial, needs to be different than than those up top that need to learn how to change the culture. Because strategy, again, isn't going to work unless there's a culture change of police departments across the country. Different strategies, different processes, different policies that are inclusive and equitable instead of these plugs that are trying to sweep under the rug, right? That's our MO for this country. We sweep our shit under the rug because we just want to make sure that we look like we're doing the right thing. No. And theologically, I'll add, is a completely separate approach and situation, right? Because now I'm talking to those that profess some sort of Christian faith within the Christian, under the Christian umbrella, etc. And I'm really fearful, honestly, because we have individualistic cultural values in primarily white Christians, but also black Christians and also those that are not individualistic yet act under a individualistic theology where it silos an event and reconciliation is really just like hey i'm sorry okay you're sorry great i'll try to act different and that's just not what justice and shalom is right it's it's not a hug it out theology it is a systemic interpersonal and personal justice approach so there's a lot of people that with a nine seven or nine day media news cycle or news media cycle are gonna forget about this because they have also culturally siloed this situation because their theology is well you know uh, Jesus died on the cross three days done we do that once a year and we can move on to some something else that's pressing which again like I said is perpetuated by the by the news and its cycle and that's not like we got to understand justice right it's not hey we do this one thing or this other thing it's looking at any space centering the most marginalized like Jesus did over and over and over again and saying F you to the speed of empire and in this case white supremacy and rewriting that script so that we go slower so that we reorient who we're after because we've lived a different life otherwise I think just like Jesus damned the fig tree for not producing fruit I think God is saying the same thing to Christianity, to those that profess Christianity. It says it clearly in Amos, it says it clearly in all kinds of other places in the Old Testament, and Jesus 
in a good way, perpetuated that those prophetic words and said, no, I curse you for not producing fruit. I curse you for just looking like you are about justice, in this case, in the Chauvin case, because the fruit comes after, right? The fruit will come in behavior change. And behavior change takes three years minimally to start. I mean, behavior change were with like policy or, you know, just let, let me just not do something unhealthy. That's, that could be pretty quick. But behavior change where it becomes part of you, that takes three years minimally because it's repetition, right? It's not only that 30-day habit change, but it is repetition over time and, and it's real. So theologically, I think... I think there's a lot of reckoning that needs to be done with what God is actually saying primarily to white middle class and up Christians that base the speed of their theology around the media news cycle of seven days. That ain't right. So yes, am I excited? Absolutely. Yesterday I celebrated friends and family. And it was a short celebration because we have so, so far to go to actual justice, which is personal, interpersonal, and systemic. And when I say systemic, I not, I not only mean, oh, what's wrong now? But I mean, what's the equitable approach to centuries of inequity, of murder? So that's what I think, I, uh, that's what I think we need. So I guess the question then remains after you've heard all these responses, some other audio clips um, of issues of race and racism in this country. What are we going to do? What are, where, where are we going to end up at? Right. Prayers and thoughts, thoughts and prayers. Right. Are we going to continue this kind of practice in insanity doing the same thing expecting different results right let's be peace let's be peaceful about this let's be peaceful president byron over there talking about let's be peaceful let's have peaceful protest were you thinking that when you drop them bombs when your first uh, air raid is your presidency be peaceful right were y'all thinking that when we invaded afghanistan for two goddamn decades Let's be peaceful, you know, let's work it out. We didn't go over there with guns and bombs. We went over there with love and petitions, right? Did, did sit-ins. So what the hell are we going to do? I always wonder that because it feels like we're just repeating the same story. It sounds like it's one big Groundhog Day over and over and over and over being repeated. So that's the serious question. I'm not saying that rhetorically, ideologically, like uh, it, it. what are we going to do? Police reform is, is necessary. But even deeper than that, right? It's like saying, oh, we're to control guns and everything. No, this stuff is deeper. This is ideological. This goes down into the core of a person's being. Laws have never created justice or morality or instilled ethics in folks in fact laws just if you're smart 
You have money. You have privilege. You're able to, you do all you can in your power to avoid them. So don't talk to me about, let's just create laws. Laws are meant to be broken, especially by those in power, especially by those who are privileged, especially by those who create the laws, <laughs> right? So it's important that we begin to actually ask the right questions. What the hell are we going to do as we move forward? Right? How do we put pressure on those in, 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 in power? Is that even possible at this point? Do we create a fifth, sixth, seventh party of the, the electoral process? Is that even possible? Do we seek refuge in another country? Is that even an option? Do we seek to arm revolt? Is that even possible? Right? Or is there something that we just haven't seen yet? Because people have been praying about this shit for a long time, and I'm done praying. I'm trying to figure out what we do next. Because for me, feels like the shit is same as it ever was. Nothing is changing. It's same as it ever was. So, what are we going to do?